welcome to Fosbury Flop, a podcast for the crazy ones who are not fond of rules, a podcast about the geniuses who change the world. James Vaughan is one of those thinkers who you first label as utopian. Then you start to think about what he's saying. And finally, you prove him right. He's a researcher and football coach at Ike Stockholm. In his PhD papers and articles, he explains how culture impacts how we are, how we play, and how it develops or kills the creativity of our players. His wisdom gives us hope to find some light in such a great future. James, thank you very much for, for coming to Fosbury Flop. I met you in, in Kisakalio. Then I continue, I keep knowing about you through all your papers and articles. And two of them that opened completely my eyes and, and I loved was first the misguided uh, praise Yankees, highlighting a little bit how cultures influence our, our players and their development. And then as a Catalan, I loved all your work related to Barça, FC Barcelona, the Catalan culture, and so on. So, but you are, if I'm not wrong, from New Zealand? Yeah, well, well first of all, thank you for inviting me on. And um, I'm pleased you've enjoyed some of the, some of the articles that are out there. Um, I am originally from the UK. Okay, so I grew up in England uh, and uh, um, was involved in like kind of the first football academy setups there. Um, but then when I was 15, I was released after an injury and uh, moved to New Zealand. So from 16 okay. to 25, I was uh, I was in New Zealand. Um, so yeah. you, you are from UK, you go yeah. to New Zealand. Yeah. Now you are coaching in Sweden. But yeah. what brings you to Barcelona? Yeah, well, um, when I was when I was in New Zealand, I I mean, I actually started uh, I, I started coaching as a player coach. I think I might have been 20, around about 20, 21 when the university football team, I was at Otago University and they uh, they ran out of money. So the, the best way to save money was to, to not hire a coach. Uh, so me and actually a couple of friends kind of just put our hands up and said, well, look, we we can try and do this thing. Um, and that's where my coaching journey started. And then after working in actually senior football very early on, uh, I realized I needed to go and learn more about coaching. Um, so I actually started a master's with the University of Queensland, um, which was initially like um, online by distance. And then uh, I moved to a master's whereby I was studying a team in Melbourne. And so I was following a team um, over the course of a year and trying to understand how, well, really the relationship between self-determination theory and creativity. Um, and after doing that, so like understanding players like perceptions of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Um, after that, really everything boiled down to cultural values and what was what what really what really defined autonomy, competence, and relatedness in many ways was the cultural context and uh, how the culture kind of set the foundation for those things. Um, so then after finishing my master's, I had the opportunity to apply for a, a PhD at University of Queensland. And that was like where where I was in my time of life and being in Australia and New Zealand, the best pathway for me to continue developing as a coach 
um, was to, to stay in the academic path. Um, and so I designed my PhD study to do different cultural case studies to look at how creativity was influenced by culture uh, and using football as the, as the kind of context to understand that. And that took me to Barcelona. That was the place I wanted to go. So you could say I designed my PhD to get myself to Barcelona. That's one way of putting it. Uh, but I think it was also just a fascinating case study in general. It was, you know, it was just on the back of Pep Guardiola being there. I think it was uh, Luis Enrique and uh, Suarez and Messi and Neymar at the top. And you still had Iniesta there and Busquets and uh that kind of the end of the glory days, if you like. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was almost like a, a bit of a mecca to go to Barcelona and uh, understand how uh, how player development took place and how culture influenced that and whether it made, uh, made it, whether it was conducive to creativity or whether it was stifling and to try and understand the tensions and the dynamics at play. Because can you explain a bit more what was a little bit the main link between your PhD and your experience in Barcelona? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but that's, uh, I suppose... <laughs> or maybe it was just the excuse. No, no, no. Well, it was, it was going... Um, it, it was in many ways looking at the football that was being played in Barcelona um and the the creative expression of players like Messi and Iniesta and Suarez and and, and Neymar and going and, and then also being aware of the history in Barcelona um you know back as far as Rinus Mikels and Cruyff uh and going like well, what is happening in this place that is allowing this way of football to flourish because at, at that time like the um what's now considered the I suppose the, the positional game, um, uh, it, it wasn't as widespread at all. Um, and it really was Barcelona back in kind of, you know, 2008 with Pep and then Spain in 2010. And then it was becoming more popular and spreading around the world. So I think part of that was a big part of me wanting to go there uh, as well as just, you know, the the best team was there the best players were there like uh, <laughs> uh and uh and then i suppose there was also the uh yeah the the catalan side of things so but I, to be honest marty i'm not sure if i how much i actually can't remember how much of that i knew before i went to barcelona um i mean i must have been i was definitely aware of I was definitely aware of that uh, Barcelona and Catalonia were um, Catalonia was different from Spain, but I, I wasn't aware of the the magnitude of that difference and the the history uh, that comes with that. I feel I feel like James that you know much more about Barcelona, Catalonia, and all its culture that many Catalan people. Maybe I would include myself also. But, but, but <laughs> that's very nice of you to say, and uh, I suppose that just maybe I did an okay job with my with my PhD study. That must be uh, that that's what it's down to, I suppose. <laughs> I remember like a moment, kind of like enlightening, when I was reading about uh, the Gothic Cathedral in the mm -hmm. center of Barcelona, no, in yeah. which you were exposing that just the Catalan culture. It was a little bit the mindset, like by the people, for the people. Yeah. 
And that's why they wanted to do it. Uh, well, maybe you can explain it better, the story in which between you link the cathedral and the Barca game stand. Yeah, so the, I mean, th this is me repeating the stories that are told in the city and uh, and an understanding of the artifacts and the, um, um, and, um, and the histories. Um, so what I understood through my research was that one a key difference between Catalonia and the rest of Europe is the layout and the design then and the architecture of like the Gothic churches. Um, being that in the majority of Europe, it's uh, they are they're in a they, they are lined up like a cross, uh, and the, the hallways are quite narrow narrow basically. Um, so you've got the altar in the middle, and you've got a cross. Uh, a cross shape and it's narrow so with it being narrow you had certain people sitting at the front and certain people sitting at the back certain people sitting off on the wings um and that ended up in many ways being a class thing um being a um yeah being the richer at the front the poor at the back or or the nobles at the front the poor at the back that kind of dynamic um, whereas in Catalonia, the Gothic churches were built to be as wide as possible. So they, most of them, if not all of them, don't have a, a cross structure at all. And they are, yeah, they're, they're super wide. And they actually had to develop special um, special engineering, uh, ways of engineering, like shallow roofs that could hold um you know, hold a lot of weight to be able to actually expand and have that that big space. And the idea being just that you can get more people in the same space, and that there's less. It's more, uh, it's more egalitarian, or there's uh, there's a, there's a there's more equality in where people are seated and uh, yeah, how people have access to the space, um, and those kind of ideas, and that then becomes so in some of the things i've read and some of the stories that i was aware of it became clear that this was talked about as catalans having a passion for width um because the, the width gives you space it gives you room for more people to share that space um and then you watch barcelona play and um you know traditionally utilizing the width of the pitch was something that they um was a very clear expression of this positional game um, and sharing the ball and having a possession-based game um, and particularly a possession-based game whereby the ball is moved around from one side of the pitch to the other side of the pitch. Um, it was uh, yeah, it was a kind of recognition that just uh, emerged in the, uh, in the data that I was collecting and in the analysis I was doing um, and to me, at least, it seemed like uh, uh, there was a, a clear connection, um, albeit over, you know, if you like, hundreds of years um, from when these churches were designed to the expression of football we see today. It's recognizing that there's a there's a red thread, um, and that red thread is this value in uh, having a, a more fair and equal egalitarian kind of society. And that then is expressed or manifests in lots of different ways um, within the culture. So in the churches and on the football pitch yeah, <laughs> and in so lots of other places as well. I, I remember it a lot that first, when you read that, there is like a little bit of a surprise. No? How can be that this 
church yeah. is connected to football. Yeah. But then I just remember one moment in the in the first Champions League final that with Guardiola we were playing, in which I think Pedro was in the side, in the I think it was left wing maybe, and the ball was in the other side of the court, and he was completely connected or almost touching the line, yeah. keeping the the space super super wide, mm-hmm. and what he was doing was that one of the the I don't know which was the defender of Manchester United that had to stay with him yeah. very close. Yeah. And then no, and, and then you see this first connection, like okay, maybe that's right. But then it also came to my mind that I think in Spain, the biggest, for example, in Catalonia, many people in the dictatorship and any and many other times, people from other parts of Spain has came here. Or if you see, for example, uh, elections results. As everywhere, like uh, the extreme right, for example, is increasing, but the pattern in Catalonia it's quite different, different to many places in which is is growing more, and it's very curious because from from that first thought, like how can this be real? Then you start seeing facts of the culture, and you say like, okay, may, maybe it's right, no? And it's yeah, completely very interesting. Yeah, and it, it it's. I mean, I, I can remember being in Denmark and um, making these points and doing a presentation and talking about the uh, the style of play and the uh, and the Gothic churches. And um, I remember one one of the audience or one of the coaches kind of uh, you know walking off at the end, just like "There's no way, there's no way, I'm not having that." Like, I'm not, I'm not having. That. I'm not having that these gothic churches are connected to this this way of playing football and uh and I can understand that and it's also it's important to recognize that we're not we're not saying that this is a correlation it's not a equals b um it's recognizing that there is there's a social and cultural context and from that you have different emergent features and sport is just an emergent feature um, and that's why football is so interesting because it is played in all these different cultural contexts. And then the style of play that emerges from the cultural context will tell you something about that cultural context. Um, and then if you're studying aspects of the, the cultural context, other there are other emergent features of that as well, like, like the architecture. Um, so, and, and it's not that anyone has purposefully gone tell you what we really value equality and and we like to express that in the width of our churches so when we play football let's let's be let's be really wide in what we do the mindset behind no of the the catalan culture not the church itself exactly so it's it's the values that underpin it and it's this intentionality that exists within the within the system so it's not something that exists in any person's mind as such it's but it's a relationship between the people and the culture and the place um and again that's that's a difficult perspective for 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 many to to get our heads around because it's not a it's not a western worldview as such it's a worldview that is a lot more relational um and it's a worldview that is um yeah that that doesn't 
doesn't always sit right with uh, with the the history of uh, certainly I would say northern European cultures in particular. Uh, I, I would say um, it's a little bit more black and white thinking. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like, but now, for example, not thinking. I love my dad, but my dad, for example, reading my thesis about complex systems and paddle coaching always yeah. has said to me like, yeah, Marty, that's very beautiful, but that's not, that's not real. You cannot coach like that. Yeah. So James, how would you describe to my dad how, where you live can impact how you play? Well, it's interesting because I think the, like that, I think people know that. I think people intuitively understand this but they understand it at an intuitive level um, rather than at a uh, at, at like a rational or intellectual level. Uh, and the classic example is something my dad would talk about um, and the idea that like, so he, he was from Liverpool and people would always like, and you know, so in, in Liverpool, you kind of call the scouser um, and you're uh, <laughs> That, that it carries kind of like certain characteristics and certain uh, stereotypes and things like that. Um, but what people would say is you can take the boy out of Liverpool, but you can't take the Liverpool out of the boy. Um, I love this sentence. Yeah, which is really like really a deep recognition of how place shapes us and how our culture shapes us. Um, so I, I think people understand that at, at, uh, at that intuitive level, but we haven't necessarily had the science uh, and the methodological tools to really shine a light on that. Um, so when people want to be rational or more objective and more scientific, then it's almost like that, that intuition, that, that embedded knowledge they have to put that to one side and then they go, yeah, but Marty, how do you, how do you prove that to me? Mm. Which becomes a question of knowledge and epistemology and uh, ontology. And unfortunately that is a place where yeah, it's difficult to have those conversations because you really are asking people to challenge their view of the world Um and that's quite a fundamental challenge and a fundamental change. Um, but I think we can always help people by bringing them back to um, bringing them back to examples um, and bringing them back to that knowledge that's more intuitive. Like, yeah, well, you know, you take the boy out of Liverpool, but not the Liverpool out of the boy. Like, it, it's it's essentially that. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a. I would say that uh, you would maybe think a little bit like me that it's very easy to feel if you have been in different cultures, but a little bit hard to explain. For example, me as a basketball coach, mm -hmm. I saw that the warm up and many drills or many even ways of talking that I was using in Barcelona, I couldn't use in Finland. <laughs> and a little bit the same as what players ask me or how players play paddle. Yeah. And and that's the tricky point, no? I would say that you that you have been all over the world, can you see it? But in the fact of explaining, yeah. this way is not so easy. I I completely agree. I completely agree. And and for me that was that was moving from the UK to New Zealand at 15 years old, 
but that was like it was like that planted a seed of like well why the hell is everything what this place is so similar but it's so different like why and like for me it was why is rugby the national sport over here like why and why is it football in and those but those it was planting a seed those questions were kind of it wasn't even that I asked those questions initially, but they almost grew inside of me like uh, over a number of years to the point whereby at university, um, like uh, lecturers and professors were asking those same questions. And then it was like, okay, well, this is actually like a legitimate question and people have some like insight into to why that might be. And that's what that's what's really fascinated me um in relation to football and that's why I ended up in Barcelona and I think um yeah my dad and I have always been fascinated with Brazilian football um as well and a big part of that will be that dad actually saw Pele play in the 19 uh, in the 66 World Cup in England uh, at Goodison Park in Liverpool and like I think at that point in time you know seeing the Brazilian team play as uh I mean, you can imagine like no TV, no internet, and um, it's just a real once in a lifetime type thing. Uh, and so he'd always been very interested in in the way they play and the, the beautiful game and uh, where that comes from as well. Uh, and obviously there's some good research out there that's actually gone and looked at Brazil in particular, which is, uh, and football, which is very interesting stuff. I think here it would be very interesting that you explain also because you have found also like in Brazil they have skills moves that you only see in Brazil and I don't think that it's just randomness and it's something also you have been I think mentioning yeah yeah totally um it, I mean it is again I think that's where you look through the lens of like um a constraints that approach uh, and you look through the lens of um, of, of ecological dynamics and recognizing that skills develop uh, in relation to the environment that you're in, um, then it's it's actually kind of not too difficult to uh, well, <laughs> again, this is depends on how you see the world, right? But to see like you just if we just kind of give an umbrella term of street football, uh, and we recognize that most players in Brazil grow up with street football. Um, and then so being skillful in small spaces, that um, becomes kind of obvious that, that that's where they spend a lot of their time. But then you have the cultural influences of, uh, you know, samba and capoeira and the, the cultural kind of identity or idea of jinga. Um, and before you know it, you've got this perfect storm of... Um, of if you want to call them kind of movement cultures that, that overlap and infuse each other. Um, and you, you get this, yeah, this very unique expression in, uh, in football. Uh, and there is, yeah, yeah, there, there is some, there's some really wonderful work um, out there um, by a researcher called Luis, Luis Uada. And I, I apologize every time I try and say his last name, it's slightly <laughs> We will put the 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 work we'll in the notes links, of the episode. We'll put some links to his work, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's funny enough, he was uh, Luis was at Otago University when I was there, so he was doing his PhD when when I was an undergrad. Um, so um, yeah, there's been some really good people there that kind of almost the front runners of uh, of some of this stuff. 
But I think this example of Brazil shows a little bit how this culture at the end shapes how you play and who you are. No, like at the end, street football is played all over South America, and I think we have a lot to learn from that. But those kind of movements, their style, you only or you, above all, you find it in in Brazil. Yeah. Well, you. I think there's a really interesting, like it's a very interesting time in football in general at the moment, and and this is really coming from Brazil with the ideas of um, relationism. Not sure if you're familiar with that. It's kind of. Uh, uh, an idea um, that is has been proposed as a, in many ways, as something distinct and counter to like traditional positional play. So I think it's really actually interesting here that we have we have uh, coming from Barcelona, if you like, um, with Rinas Mikkels and with Cruyff and with Pep, uh, and the tradition of like the positional game being there. Um, and that being kind of in many ways highly structured, um, but also at least my interpretation has been there is there is structure, but there's always been space for creativity for those players that have the ability to accept that space uh, and are skillful enough to utilize it, which is very interesting. But then in Brazil now you have like the, the counter to that, which is this idea of relationism, which is much more rather than like equally sharing the space on the pitch, you, you, you orientate yourself and move based on uh, the positions of your teammates um, and obviously the opposition. Um, but there's no, there's not the same imperative to, to like, to, to use the full width of the pitch like if all eight players can be on one side of the pitch and, and be in positions yeah. to receive the ball and, and move the ball forward to create opportunities, then yeah, why not? And I was actually discussing this with a, a friend of mine recently. And I think that again is so suited to the Brazilian player. Um, and in many ways, like uh, Fluminense uh, and the coach Dinez there are the, the, yeah, the forerunners or the, uh, the the kind of creators of this new wave and this idea of relationism. But what's super interesting is when you hear the coach talk of Fluminense, what he talks about is his players. And he talks about um, meeting their needs in many way and respecting that they have a way of wanting to play the game. They have a way of bringing themselves and expressing themselves in football. Uh, and so in many ways, this way of playing is an expression of those players. So I think it's it's a wonderful example of uh, a style of play emerging with and co-created with the players from a specific cultural context. Uh, and Barcelona was the same. I, I truly believe the, the positional game um, resonated with the, the Catalan culture in a number of different ways. Uh, in that it was uniquely different from anywhere else. So this sense of like self-determination and doing things differently, I think allowed Mikkels and then Cruyff to be accepted and for people to really want to uh, to play in this, this, this new way. 
Uh, and as we've discussed already, there was serious overlap with Catalan values um, in, in terms of yeah, sharing the space equally and um, yeah, and seeing that expressed in the way football is played. So what you get there is two styles of football that are quite different, but when they when they're aligned with the the cultural context and when the players are able to express who they are or who they feel they are and what they value you get really high levels of performance um i think what has happened with the debate around relationism and positionism at the moment is that the barcelona's if you like way of playing the positional game has been exported and imposed by many coaches in cultures whereby it doesn't align with the player's self-expression. And so you have to globally, you have to enforce that way of playing on players. And what you get is very docile players who just do what they're told rather than go and express themselves on the pitch. Um, so I think that's, that's a wrinkle actually in this whole debate, which uh, maybe isn't, Maybe we ha- we don't shine enough of a light on that. The the philosopher Nassim Taleb mm. exposes explains about iatrogenics, uh, no? That is mm. the harm caused when you uh, intervene a system that would heal itself, no? And he puts the example, for example, of United States, that more people kill uh, is dead about opioids than of car accidents, no? Because at the small pain, the doctor gives medicine and then they mix with alcohol or whatever and they have car accidents. When probably if we would tolerate better or whatever, it wouldn't be needed to intervene the system. But I I relate completely this topic to, for example, to what you were saying of Fulminense or of our, our role as coach to just let the players express. Because I think that many times, uh, with talent or with players, the only need that coaches need to do is don't destroy things. Just try to go with them. And this obsession of over, over, like intervene, continue, control, at the end is, is completely, it's constraining that yeah. fact. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's there's obviously, there's, there's, there's two sides of a spectrum there as well. Um, in that too much freedom and too much choice can also lead to a kind of paralysis, which is where like the constraints led approach uh, and like in a, a more kind of ecological view becomes really helpful because it's not it's not just like let the kids play or let the players play in its complete freedom. It is skillfully designed sessions which constrain and uh, constrain in a way that afford certain opportunities and uh, certain solutions to emerge and certain then skills related to those solutions so it is it is i think drawing the solutions out of uh, out of the players so they are expressing themselves to solve like the challenge in front of them rather than having to to kind of abcd it and that I think is the that's the art of coaching. Um, that's kind of where... to manage this spectrum, no, between over constraining yeah. or or not constraining at all. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I also think this is like 
And this is a little bit, this is not necessarily, this is something that like flirts around the edges of, of the research that I've done. But I think the focus on the individual and even the word individual, the amount we talk about individuals is, is strange in comparison to say people or person. Like uh, the, so I think that that's a very, that's kind of like uh, an interesting wrinkle and connected to that there's a lot of research around autonomy which is about then the individual choice or at least autonomy has been very much interpreted and maybe kind of politically <laughs> almost like taken to be like personal choice because that fits with like a free market ideology right and neoliberalism and capitalism and all those type of things so i think that research and that emphasis like almost bleeds down into into coaching practice because everything does it cascades down and so we have a situation whereby there has been a thought that a constraints-led approach or a teaching games for understanding is like hands off like you yeah. don't say anything you don't do anything because autonomy is choice but i would argue autonomy is not that that's that is one aspect of autonomy but an, an arguably a more important aspect is being able to express what you value so like that becomes then you can design that into training sessions you can design that into the way the team plays you can very simply ask the players what they enjoy most about playing the game and you can start from there um but it's certainly not a it's not a hands-off autonomy is just the most choice you can possibly have that can lead to paralysis and that can lead to just like a deer in the headlights. Like, ah, there's no, there's no constraints. I could do it's, anything here, so I do nothing. It's like autonomy is the fact to achieve, no? Like the, co the coach can constrain, put conditions to explore, no? Yeah. That the players explores differently and then they yeah. can achieve autonomy. Exactly, that's it, that's it. They have, yeah. Because yeah. James, I, I'm sure that uh, for all that I read and seen, you try to apply a, uh, all this to your to your teams but for example in your context in which i guess that you are in a quite a professional i don't know how good say high performance academy how do this translate to your coaching practices mm -hmm. it's a it's a very good yeah it's a really good question if we can just there was just one line of thought before i before i come back to this one because i think the it might provide a clear example of what we what we've just been discussing um in relation to a coach's approach in the way you set up a team being allowing them to express themselves versus allow versus like not allowing to express themselves and then how that might influence autonomy and then a performance in general and like argentina at the world cup is is a good example of this uh, i think it's been pretty well documented in different articles that they um it was i think it was the saudi arabia game whereby they they ended up uh, drawing i think it was 2-2 two, two. or did they lose 2-1 they lost that game i think didn't they I, I i don't remember it wasn't a good performance anyway um but when you look at that they played more of a positional style like a positional game it was the high and wide it was the players playing in different positions uh you know which there's nothing wrong with that given that that's something that the players want to express and that it, it fits with the broader context. Um, 
And but then in the following games, they moved to what would be considered more of a relational style, whereby it was less about people being in positions and more about people being close to each other and being able to uh, being able to connect with each other, being able to interact. Um, and from there, that has been what has been said is that that represents the the kind of historical way of playing in Argentina that that allowed the players to express who they are as these players that come from the street as these players that you know have played um, you know in these small spaces or, or just really what 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 the what bubbles up from the Argentinian culture and and there obviously they kicked on and they did very well and they end up winning the World Cup so I think it's just a it's a very clear example of how you can impose a way of playing on a certain group of players that for whatever reason and doesn't really allow them to express themselves or express their culture or express what they value. Uh, and therefore, you're never going to get like the best performance out of that group if they don't feel like they're expressing who they are um, as a team and who they are as players. So it, then if I jump back <laughs> to the question around uh, around how we work, um, there is... What I encourage our, a lot of our players, sorry, a lot of our coaches to do uh, is to um, go on a journey with their players and with their team, which is open uh, and starts with, the, well, what do you what do you enjoy about football or what do you love most about football? Or who are the players that you love watching the most? Who are the teams that you enjoy watching the most? What is it that they do that you really enjoy? What 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 is it that gets you up off off your off your seat? Um, from those players, who would you like to play like? What aspects? What strengths do they have that you have? What things do they have that you don't, but you'd like to have? Areas we'd like to improve. So, trying to. Yeah, really trying to using the game and the way players and teams play the game to help them express themselves uh, and express who they are as a group and who they are as individuals. And I think there are many benefits to this, many ripples on the on the water. Um, and I think because once you know more or less like who do they want to play, which styles they like, yeah. then is it your work? to try to, to adapt. I guess that you also have to constrain a bit in order that everybody can express. Yep, it is. Then it is the, the most complex dance, as, yes. you, as you know, with coaching. It is, you know, it, it's crazy. <laughs> it's a crazy complex dance because there's, there's so many other constraints based on who's available this game, who are the opposition, who, uh, you know, where are people at in terms of fitness and there's just all these other considerations but the i think the value that what can happen is that we when we put a player in a situation going into a game we have a clear idea of what of of what they want to do and how they like to do it and whether that fits well with this game and we can put them in a position whereby it might fit the best, maybe. Um, but also just having the conversation. So just really like the players getting to tell you as, you know, the coach, what they yeah. love about football and you as a coach sitting there and just listening and like 
you know, being genuinely interested. I mean, I think that's that's massive for for most for most players um, to kind of have that. And then, as a coach, if you can reference some of the things that you've talked about in training sessions um, or in relation to games, it's very it's a very it's very clear then for the players that like in their words, using their role models, you're able to go, yeah, well, this is a great opportunity to play like this today. Or yeah. I can see you having loads of opportunities to do this thing that is a real strength of yours. Or today is an opportunity to explore doing this, which I know is something you want to improve. Um, and I see no, a little bit that what is very interesting that at the moment that I am asking you how you put this into practice, you are talking about the players like, okay, the players first, no? But then I have, and I really like a lot the point that you said that they can talk. I think usually it has been seen like, hey, no, the coach talks and the player says, okay, okay, I will do it. Which this yeah. is, a, I think, a very powerful change of mindset. But now it came to my mind, the, I think it's Juan Vila sentence that says FC Barcelona doesn't have the idea has one idea and wants to share it. Mm. And I would say for what we have been talking a little bit your career, that you have had a lot of influence and, and you like this idea of FC Barcelona. So which role does it play you, your thoughts, your preferences in the moment of coaching? Like you want that your team plays in a way you like, you are more at their service. It's a 50-50. Okay, yeah, I see. This is a really interesting one. Um, I think because of how I, th I honestly, because of the way football is has been globalized, because of the internet, because of all the different football you can watch and you can see, I think if you ask most teams in most in most, like at least, kind of, I suppose, countries that are similar to to Spain, to Sweden, to Germany, to um, you're going to get them. The answers to who do you want to play like are going to end up being um, related to the most successful teams. So, in the last couple of years, when you ask this question, like even here in Sweden, like predominantly the answers circle around uh, a Liverpool and a, a Man City. We want to defend like Liverpool. We want to be like Man City when we have the ball. Um, so for me, what the answers to the question, you're, you're getting, um, there's never been any conflict with me going, nah, I don't want my teams to play like that. <laughs> like, no, that's in, really nice. Like, like if if a team came and said, like, okay, we want to play like Stoke back in the back in the early two thousands, we want to launch the long throws, we want to then you quit, the then you quit. <laughs> then honestly, you could go, well, all right, maybe this. I mean, maybe I'm not the right coach for this yeah. team, and maybe yeah. maybe I'm not right the, the right coach for this group of players. Uh, but I, I, I've never I've never had that. But even if that was the case. For me, what becomes most exciting is, okay, fine, that's how you want to play. How do we get there? 
how do we get really good at that if that's what you want to be really good at how do we do that based on like the the group of players that we have based on the type of opposition based on the culture that we're in based on the facilities and the resources that we have and then for me that's the exciting part is well what do we do on the grass and then trying to get there through an ecological lens, an ecological way of working. So yeah, ecological dynamics, constraints that approach, what we would talk about as like um, shaping skilled intentions using the foundations of task design model. Um, so yeah, I think that the journey of getting there is is interesting. And what I would, what I would, well, what I truly believe is if the way you're working, if you're working in a way that, if you're working from this perspective, that it's the relations between players, it's shared affordances, it's it's being really well attuned to the movement of teammates and opposition. Like no matter what the style of players that you're ending up towards, you're going to develop skilled players and skilled relations within a team. And then what you're going to get is little moments of creativity, even even if we're hoofing the ball long. <laughs> There'll be moments, there'll be moments whereby they're looking for the long ball and they see the, the strikers running to just come and block it and they shape it and they cut inside and they dribble and they do something else. Because the context within the context in which you would train, you would always be offering more than one option. Um, and you'd be going, yeah, okay, we can play over, but we want to be able to play over. Like it's helpful if we can play around because then the defense can't just drop or we want to play through. So we keep the defensive line higher. So it's easier to play over. So when you Could get... You, James, sorry. I found in Kisakalio in your presentation, very interesting, this concept of play around, play over. Could you summarize it a little bit for all, all the listeners? In, yeah. In which um... is based? Yeah, so this is this is recognizing that when we're looking at a, a team sport and an invasion sport in particular, you're looking at like complex adaptive systems. So you're looking at a one opposition adapting to another opposition, uh, and mostly one opposition that that has the ball, uh, and a team that wants to get the ball or wants to stop that that other team getting into a goal. So they are they're constantly adapting to each other right and in most invasion games you need to get behind a number of opposition players to be able to then score a goal or get close enough to the goal and then very simply to get behind the opposition given the dynamics of the game and the laws of physics and all that kind of stuff uh, you can play around the opposition You can play through the opposition lines or you can play over the opposition. Um, and what is key for me is that these are intentions. They're skilled intentions that shape intentionality in the game. And intentionality is this... What do you mean? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's this, it's this directedness that we experience towards the environment. So it's the intentionality that shines a light on some aspects of the environment and therefore some affordances that stand out rather than others. So there's like a value directedness to it. So I would say in Barcelona, 
your value directed players towards to adopt wide spaces and recognize the width of the pitch and therefore the opportunity we shine a light on the opportunity to pass out wide the shared affordance to play out wide that becomes something that because of the broader intentionality which directs attention in the game that affordance becomes something we utilize we develop skills to utilize it and it's like uh, it's something that becomes kind of ingrained um and so it, it it would be like the players intentions go are educated in order to go over go through or yeah and and the reason again we're talking about intentions and intentionality rather than principles is that intentionality is this relationship be between like aspects of the environment so there is no there is There is no inner corridor um, when we're when we're when we see the game and we see the pitch. There, there's opposition and there's teammates. And yes, there are some lines on a pitch, but there's no line for an inner corridor. Um, there's no switch of play actually in the pitch. There's there's nothing there. It's just a concept that has to you know stay in here, and you have to kind of represent it in the game. But there are opposition to play around. There are opposition to play through and there are opposition to play over. And what's really important is this is this this is a relational concept in itself, in that as we start to play around, the opposition, if they don't adapt, then we can continue to play around, but most will. And when you adapt to stop the team playing around, then you open up opportunities to play through. When you start to play through in between lines, then people have to step up to try and win the ball, which means then you have the opportunity to play over. And it, but that's not ABC either. That's like it can be round the other way as well. You have runs to go over, which means you have more space between the lines, so you can play through. Or you play through, which means they get more compact, so you can play around. So it's just recognizing that these intentions they sit together, and that the most skilled players and skilled teams are the ones that hold these intentions in the same space simultaneously. So as I am looking to play around, I am also trying to be aware of if an opportunity to play through opens up and be aware of, is there an opportunity to play over? So you're really, it's about educating players' attention, but doing that through their intentions. So what are they trying to do? And linking their intentions always to, to real things in the game. So what we say, environmental properties in the game and the, and the dynamic properties, mo most importantly, because the better attuned we are to the movements of opposition and teammates and the ball and the area on the pitch and the proximity to the goal, um, then the more attuned we are, the more skillful we become at looking around and playing through and driving through and then playing over and being able to to skillfully juggle all these intentions, which then develop skill sets that allow us to adapt from one thing to another. And I would say then you get these markers of skilled intentionality, which for me is any moment that any moment that a defender or an opposition team or line moves away, almost like moves away from where the ball is being taken. Or so traditionally, like in a pass fake or like a feint or a step over, the defender steps in the wrong way and you take the ball the other way. But it can be that you you look to play the ball over, the whole back line drops, and then you hit a flat ball in front. 
to a player that's just standing in front now. So any time that opposition players are deceived and they move in the wrong direction, then you've got a moment of uh, kind of, uh, yeah, a marker of skilled intentionality. And therefore, me, that's a creative moment in uh, in invasion sports and team sports. That That's what I was going to say that, no? I think this, I don't know if you agree, it would be a nice example to show what we were talking about, that creativity, foster creativity, is not just say, okay, I let you alone and create, but kind of the spectrum that we were saying before here is not free play, is not over-constraining on what to do, but setting out, uh, educate this intention, no? And then in order to make these three concepts, they have enough spaces, enough different opportunities to make this, this creativity. Yeah, totally. And in many in many session designs, you can you can take away. Uh, I mean, in m- many session designs don't have over, for example. Um, you know, and then you can design other sessions whereby you're really shining a light on the opportunities to play around um, by by making it making sure the defenders are covering through or or the other way around. So yeah, you, it's very it becomes you know using this lens and using the foundations of task design model as well it becomes it becomes it's like for, for me it's like having uh it's having a compass so it provides like it provides like the foundations of task design model and shaping skilled intentions as ideas it's like having okay i have i have a compass two compass if you like they're going to help me skillfully navigate the complexity that is coaching um the complexity of invasion games um and then for the players as well, you're going, well, through round and over, actually, this is a compass that you can take with you. And that's going to help you skillfully navigate every moment of the game. So those intentions live and breathe in every moment. When we when we have the ball, we're always looking for what, what's the best option. Is it through? Is it round and over? And where I am in relation to the ball, should I be through around or over? Um, and then when we don't have the ball, yeah, can we stop them playing through around and over? As we win the ball, that's the key. We don't want the ball going behind us. We want to try and win it. And where am I on the pitch? Again, well, I'm in a position where I need to stop them going around there. I'm in a position where I need to stop them going through there, but I'm close enough I can go and try and win the ball as well. And even though I'm verbally explaining all of this, the idea with these intentions is that, and this directedness towards the environment, is that you're able to act really quickly based on it because you're not you're not verbalizing anything in your mind. You're not having to recall um, something that you saw on the whiteboard written up by the coach <laughs> or like a yeah or like a concept that doesn't exist in the game. You are attuned to and immersed in the game, and you have these these really these 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 intentions. Like this elegant simplicity at the other end of all the game's complexity, these intentions that you share with your teammates, which help you coordinate yourselves together. Uh, and then when you have the ball, they allow you to like express yourself, but also juggle through. I'm looking around, I'm looking through, I'm looking over and I'm developing skills to be able to do all those things uh, as I go, as I go through. So yeah, hopefully that makes some sense to people. I think that completely what I see a little bit in these methods is that, and I would say like it keeps the essence of the game, like the essence of football, the nature at the moment that when when we start ordering verbally, the players have to behave because what the coach says, 
uh, maybe the task it doesn't keep this essence, this opposition, the real situations. So most all of your tasks, many keep a little bit this, uh, I would say, nature of football. I don't know how to describe it, no? But this... Uh, yeah, we'll, we would say like making sure that, that it's a representative design so that the movements, um, yeah, the movements of opposition and teammates and the gaps and spaces that open up a representative of of the game um, but then you have also the you know you have a wrinkle in that whereby you might not want them to be representative of the game because or you might want it to be more complex than the game to like really push some some kind of skill development i think this is where you've got some really interesting work um by uh by fabian otto who's looking at um the periodization of uh, of skill training the post framework which is really nice at recognizing that you have uh, representativeness um, and then you can have what is less representative um, and then it's going to be less representative and less complex, which is where we're moving to more isolated. But then you have less representative, but more complex. So there's more complexity. There can be more complexity in training design than there is in the actual game. Um, so it's less representative but with more complexity, the idea is that you hopefully get more skill adaptations uh, and that can be advantageous in certain phases of uh, acquiring uh, or developing skills, uh, which is all outlined in, um, in a couple of different papers that Fabian's done. Very interesting. For me, the, the main point for people is that I think you don't try to change the game, make your style or your own game, but just respecting the game. See, okay, yeah. how, let, how let's solve yeah. these issues. Yeah, totally. That's a, such a good way of putting it. If we, if as you say, if we respect the essence of the game, so the reality of what the game is, and we try and like we try and coach from there, and then respect the way the players want to express themselves in the game. It's, um kind of now, two key, key points key overlaps now i have to i have to ask you in your in your article misguided praise yankees mm -hmm. you exposed how the the social approval from your parents from the coach according to the the social norms of uk at that time shaped a little bit how you were no yeah how you played and for me it was surprisingly that you closed the article uh, saying that you wouldn't you wouldn't sign again if you could make the choice for mm -hmm. the Nats center of aca yeah, yeah. academy, yeah, yeah. And, and and it's quite surprising. Not that at the end, a kid in one of the best academies in the in the football place as UK would say that. Mm -hmm. So, would you are you now? Do you feel the coach or kind of that you that you would like to have had? <laughs> In Notts Academy? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I mean, I think it comes back to something you said earlier, which is, and something that, um, something that's been said in, uh, yeah, I think, I think Marco Sullivan's mentioned this on a couple of different occasions, but like, if you're going to step into the learning process or if you're going to step in as a coach, then you better be sure that you're adding value. 
Um, and the flip side of that is you better be sure that you're not, as you've mentioned, killing creativity or stepping on players' toes or, or, or whatever they want to do. Um, so the question of whether I would be the coach today that I would have wanted then, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I would be because <laughs> I, I was a little praise junkie. I wanted someone who was telling me I was good all the time and uh, and was, uh, yeah, would in many ways tell me what to do. I would go and do it. You know, and uh, I, I would be, I would feel good about myself at the end of the day and could go home. Um, so, but that for me is not, that's not developing, that's developing dependence on other people's, um, on other people's kind of, uh, yeah, thoughts and ideas and, uh, and your own self-worth being very much defined by what other people say about what you do, uh, which I don't think is healthy in, in, in many or any areas of life. Um, so I think I would be the coach now that I think I needed <laughs> back then. That's nice. That's nice. Hopefully, hopefully, um, but but probably not the coach that I, that I really wanted. Yeah. Um, and I think that's difficult with, that's very difficult in, uh, in working in team sports as well, because you're always going to have players that want, certain things from a coach um and the quick success the quick the quick fix is to give them that is to give them that praise is to give them that recognition is to tell them that they're that they that they are fantastic and that they're the center of the universe because in that moment everyone feels better but long term yes but but the same with tasks no maybe a coach might have uh, uh, a more complex methodology, more teaching games for understanding or constraint-led approach. But this doesn't mean that maybe the week that they just have lost, he makes more like analytical or isolated drills just for the fact of looking more confident or mm. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. The problem is that is the, the, the common... Yeah, no, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, it's a very good way of putting it. And I know um, there's a good uh, a good friend of mine uh, in Stockholm here who's a goalkeeper coach also from Catalonia, and he talks about similar experiences working with goalkeepers that, I mean, he, he takes a very ecological approach, wants to have as many complex training sessions as he can, uh, but recognises that, yeah, there are times the goalkeepers just want to have the ball kicked at them and they want to catch it <laughs> and throw it back, yes. even though it's not very representative of the game. Uh, it is it is something that helps for their confidence. Um, and I think that's a really important point that many players, many professionals, many coaches will do certain exercises and even what might look like drills or are drills for confidence. And I think it's important to make that distinction that you can do something to make you feel good and to, to be more confident, but that, that doesn't mean that it's helping you learn. And there's a bit of a distinction between the two there. Um, and many people that want, you know, if you take professionals that want to just get a bag of balls and kick, you know, 50 balls in the goal before on a Friday before the game on the Saturday, 
well, it, they're not a professional because they kick 50 balls into the goal and they've done that since they're 12 years old. No, no, no. They've developed all sorts of skills. Um, and then the last cherry on top of the cake, you know, before the game on the weekend is they want to knock some balls in so they can feel confident. Yes. Uh, and that That's fine. And I think that's where when we come to youth sport, though, we always have to consider like biggest bang for our buck. We don't have the time professionals have. So like, do we have time to do sessions that are isolated, that are drills to, to, to just do confidence training? Not really. We need to be focusing on, uh, on more complex environments, more complex things whereby their players are learning and they're pushed to learn. And what they, what they learn to value over the course of that is the challenge. They learn to value and appreciate and want to be challenged. Um, here, here it's uh, and this is personal experience, but what I have seen, I don't know if you agree, is that challenge is the most powerful or one of the most powerful in order to make uh, the team go out of the comfort zone, try be motivated, just the fact of challenge. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I think finding that challenge point is again a big part of the skill uh the skill and the art of coaching and it's too far and you know you lose some players because it's too difficult and they disengage and it's not realistic uh and but too easy and you never quite get them into that into that place so we talked a bit recently about finding that tension whereby if again if you're doing a session whereby you have attack you have opposition you have attackers and defenders well, the defenders need to believe that they can be successful and that this feels like it. This is a real situation, quite similar to a game. Uh, and like they can see the relevance to a game, but also in the design, we could win this. We could win this. If we can just, in this key moment, we can win this game. And the attack is the same thing. Like it's not too easy. It's not, it's a finding that tension between the two. Um becomes really important. And, and I mean, it doesn't have to be that every training session is like that for various reasons. There are other things that you might want to do, but I always find it's, those are the most fun sessions to be involved in, I think, as a player uh, and as a coach. And and I think it goes alone. Like, and, and it might be simple. Me as a paddle coach, I, I can order to do one exercise, maybe about volleys yeah. and deep. But if you just change that and you just say the first one who makes more than an exact number and just this fact eh? and it's the same drill but just the fact of challenge oh sh oh this goes a bit out of my zone that i control so i have to do more just yeah. that thing it changes yeah completely. i mean yeah i think it's making it a game right and the reason that anyone one of the big reasons that anyone has come to a training session is because there is a game at some point it's tied to a sport it's tied to a, a game um, so having uh, having it feel like it's a game is uh, is uh, is very important. Uh, James, I have to tell you that one of the sentences you wrote that made me think much more. It was the one that says, "We live in a society that is not focused on education; it is focused on competition." And I think you have made a lot of research thinking a lot about how this society, this uh, not humanized form of capitalism is influencing how we live, how we play, 
everything. So how do you see a little bit this current war nowadays is affecting the kids playing, the uh, development and so on? There's a really lovely um, YouTube video uh, that's called Alike. So A-L-I-K-E. Uh, and I, it's actually... Um, it's yeah, it's it's from Marty. It's from your part of the world originally. I'm not exactly sure whether it's Spain, Portugal, mm -hmm. Catalonia. I, I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, but for me, that that kind of captures the the essence. There's no words. It's just uh, it's an anime animation with some music, and they they really are able to capture the emotions and um, and what it feels like. So I highly recommend people go and check that out. Um, I mean. Yeah, I, I think the the emphasis that is placed on competition between individuals is, um, yeah, it, is I suppose <laughs> trying, there's lots of words that come into mind, and I'm trying to think of the one that's most appropriate, but like kind of destructive. In, in some ways that is probably one of the one of the words that comes to mind it might be uh one of the more extreme words but and I, and I think it's almost like a miss it's a misinterpretation of it comes back to wanting to play games as well so like and I think this comes back to black and white thinking games at the heart a game is a competition yeah, you're gonna have a winner and a loser. But before that, when you scratch underneath the surface, a game is really a collaboration. It's an agreement to come together and do something together. So you say to me, James, do you want to play chess? No, nah, I don't want to play chess. <laughs> okay, no game, no nothing. There's no cooperation. We don't get to play. Whereas, you know, you go, James, do you want to, I don't know, do you want to play some basketball? Yeah, I do. So we agree that we're going to do something together first. So at the basis of all competition, there should be collaboration, a foundation of we're coming together to do something together. Um, and I think in society, in Western thinking, Northern European in particular thinking being very black and white, what uh, and the, the era of neoliberalism and uh, focus on, um, on market forces and... Um, corporate capitalism and all these things we have allowed the world and our societies to shift in a direction whereby competition between people is emphasized and collaboration between people is uh, is overshadowed uh and to, to I, I have an example um Again, it comes, it comes from my dad and it comes from Liverpool. Um, so he explained to me when he was a kid, maybe like 12 years old, um, that if him and his friends wanted to play football, there was no leagues. There was nothing on a weekend. So they had like school football, but school football would be during the week, like maybe in the evenings. Um, so if they wanted to play on the weekend, they would agree like, okay, let, we'll all meet at this park at this time and let's all go and be there. So maybe there's six or seven or eight or nine of them, I don't know, however many. And they would go there and they would play, right? But if they wanted to play like a game as a team, they had to like call or go and visit friends from different schools and say, can, can, you, bring, can you bring your friends and we'll meet here and we'll play a game? So 
sometimes they'd be waiting there on a Saturday for people to turn up and no one would turn up and they'd be like, oh, okay, that's okay. We play amongst ourselves, but we, it would have been nice to play against another team. And then when they do turn up, the opposition are there. Obviously, the first, the overriding feeling is like joy and gratitude and like, oh, thank you for coming. It's great that you've turned up because now we can do this thing together. We can play this game. And when we play it, we're going to compete like hell. But the foundation is thank you for coming. Now we're here and we can play. Whereas the sport that I see today has lost that almost completely, especially youth sport. If the team doesn't turn up, oh, that's fine. We just get three points. Yeah. The team that the, the opposition team turns up, like you're lucky if the coaches shake hands, let alone say thank you for coming or get to know each other. The parents are on the opposite side of the pitch, like scowling at each other. It's there's so I think sport exemplifies that, but but that idea can unfortunately infiltrate all sorts of areas of life, including education, school systems, and workplaces. Now, now it just came to my mind. I just posted yesterday a video of Pablo Aymar, which was saying, no, like as nowadays kids doesn't play or whatever, coaches need to uh, create much more free situations in the training. When, in my opinion, this is completely an indirect criticism to society and coaches. Like saying before, it, kids were able to play in parks to self-organize. Now, because society, capitalism, everything changes, they are not doing now anymore. And now is when we see the coaches, oh, we have been killing all this creativity and now we are in a hurry to change, no? Also, I think one example that it might be clear to people that I went, thanks to your articles, was, for example, if you compare NBA and the EuroLeague basketball. Okay. In Europe, the kind of play is much more collective, high pressure in defense, uh, collaboration in offense. In United States, when you have <laughs> clearly yeah. maybe the, the, yeah. the full expression of capitalism yeah. is a game based on, 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 on just money, selling tickets, and in which the game style is fully focused on individualism. Mm. Like, I think this is also a, yeah. a clear example. Yeah, it's a very good example. And I think what is beautiful with that is as well that you can't get away from sport being about collaboration. So you, you, there will always be moments whereby that recognition dawns on people, even in the NBA playing in that. I'm thinking of the last dance um, with um, with the Bulls and, and uh, the moment whereby they, they win when... Uh, they can't get the ball to Jordan or Jordan offloads the ball to Steve Kerr and then he like he finishes yes. it like you know and it's it's in those moments you know everyone realizes what well, the, the team is super you know you need the team obviously but your point still stands that you can have a team that is designed around an individual uh, and pushing that individual and helping that individual or you can have a team that is more designed around helping uh, everyone flourish within that um yeah it's a very good point very interesting the, and and when i started uh, reading about you this uh, how this corporate capitalism affected it happened a little bit the same like with the culture you say that's not possible mm. but then it happened to me a very funny anecdote that long time ago one of my friends that it has also a complex approach to cyclism mm. tell me marty uh, it's called manuel Sol, uh, sola mm. told me marty it's impressive how much people is, for example, 
changing the diet, the exercise, taking, for example, food or drinks that in the short term are they boost the performance, but in the long term is the worst thing you can do for the body. So yeah. then I get into your papers and then I, I wrote him, hey, uh, well, uh, I said, hey, Manu, I recommend you. And by the way, I recommend you to, to all of our listeners to check James Bauhan mm-hmm. uh, papers and articles, because I think what you explain about that we only value now the extrinsical, the society is more dehumanized than ever. Yeah. Only the winners matter. So it also influences this thing, no? Yeah, I think you have another example, a good example here in Stockholm as well, is that if you want to play football as an adult, then you need to you need to be willing to play at like 9.30 at night, 10 o'clock at night, um, unless obviously, unless you're the elite and then you get paid to be a professional and you can play, you can play whenever you want. Like it's, it's another example of like how, yeah, like there's the, the fun or just the enjoyment doesn't count anymore. If you are no, not exactly. profitable no, exactly. in money terms. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like unless you unless you can be the best of the best of the best, we're not going to provide you the opportunities to do this thing. And if we do provide the opportunities, it's extremely insociable hours that's gonna like put a lot of strain and tension on the rest of your life. Yeah. So I mean it yeah it's very interesting considering where sport has been how it started from communities coming together collaborating playing games that they love to do to where it is now which is extremely elitist uh, in many places and the elitism is is trickling down to the grassroots and yeah polluting that environment in many ways so it's it's not a (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not the happiest way to end the conversation here, Martin. Uh... So I could ask you then, James, that I think that now we are in the beginning of the movie of all of this complexity science, ecological dynamics. And I think for many of us, it was also for me, can be a little bit surprising listening to talk about all these issues. So what would you recommend or which are the documents, papers, books that that have had more impact on you and you think also that that it can help on another ones yeah okay um it, it's probably less about that documents as much as it's more about people um so i must admit like the like before I met my wife, who's always been studying uh, sustainability science and uh, kind of industrial ecology and, and things like that. Um, before that, my worldview was pretty traditional. So she kind of introduced me to systems thinking and um, and kind of at that point in time, um, I was moving from my master's to my PhD and I had the opportunity to sit down and meet Keith Davids in uh, in Byron Bay uh, and then started to read more about ecological approaches. But to be fair, I'd, I'd, I'd come across the importance of the environment in in papers and in theses around, the, yeah, theses around uh, psychology 
from Cliff Mallet, my supervisor at UQ. Um, and then, you know, I met uh, Dennis Hortin and Marco Sullivan here in Stockholm when I was visiting. Um, I, I definitely, I, I recommend the series I go, but papers also, I think it's colleague of yours, Marco Sullivan. Yeah. It's also very interesting with, with yeah. all the topics we have discussing about. Yeah, definitely. And then I think if you want to get into more around like, the, the the bigger societal yeah, kind of or yeah the societal ripple effects then the guys at my fastest mile um so you have mark upton um you got al smith and john o'burn who yeah spent many many hours talking to them throughout my phd and they were extremely kind in uh in uh having these type of conversations um so it's less about, I suppose, books and more about more about people. So I would uh, I would recommend checking out what what those people are up to. Um, yeah. Here, me personally, if somebody's interested and and to see a little bit the link of cultures and how we are, I would recommend. I discovered thanks to Ali, one of the subscribers of of Fosbury Flop, and mm. it was Rule Breakers, Rule Makers. Yeah, and it explains right. a little bit how emerge social norms and and reading that book, I I promise I couldn't stop linking with lessons yeah. lessons I took from you. The other one as well, uh, which is nothing to do really with well, it is it is kind of an academic book, but the dawn of everything is something that I'm working my way through slowly. Um, but it's essentially like a a view of uh, of kind of ancient history and uh, anthropology um that is yeah counter to traditional views of of like more of a a b c d linear progression of of society and civilization and recognizing that yeah but that was non-linear as well uh, and what that means politically today and what it means in terms of what we value today and where those values really came from uh, and it's actually really relevant to the catalan culture as well they talk about where the value of equality comes from uh and that you know at least in the book's argument, equality was something that never really existed in Europe, um, but it did exist in uh, in America. So, like the the colonization of America and um, yeah, the um, I suppose yeah, going to the New World and meeting the indigenous populations there, that is where discussions about equality actually emerged and, and came from. Um, so even kind of recognizing that kind of shines a whole new light on the, the type of societies we have today and where democracy really comes from and uh, and those type of things. And and seeing, say, yeah, seeing the past differently, I think does, it gives, there is potential there to see a new way forward as well. I will check it and, and I will put all of them in the notes of the episode so everybody can check. Fantastic. James. It has been a, a very big pleasure. And I am really grateful that, that I could share this time with you. But above all, I promise that I'm even, even, even more grateful for all the, I think it's positive influence you have had of, of in my way of thinking and also in the, in the coaching style. Mm. It's oh, well. true that maybe we have finished a little bit sadly. <laughs> so you are invited whenever you want to come back and we can remember together uh, good times in Barcelona talk about Pep Guardiola, Messi, Cruyff no. and many many still many questions I have 
right in here that I would love to discuss with you. Thank you very good. much. But it's good that you have more. And yeah, thank you. It was uh, it was really nice to talk to you. It's really nice to go over um, yeah the 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 Catalan culture and what relates to FC Barcelona and that stuff again. It's been a while. So thank you, Marty. I send you a big hug from Catalonia. <laughs> Bye, James. Bye.